Well, good morning. You can take your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 15 straight away as we resume our study of the cross of Christ. The cross is the most significant event in the ministry of Christ and throughout the rest of the New Testament becomes the central element to the faith and later the symbol for Christianity itself. Just about every major religion or worldview has its own symbol. Makes me think of that coexist bumper sticker where you know all the letters of coexist have been replaced by religious symbols. The C, the crescent for Islam, the, the X becomes the Star of David for Judaism, and the T, of course, becomes the cross, the Christian cross. When you think about it, though, the Christian cross really stands out as a symbol. The other symbols, they've got some ancient religious connotation or they're just decorative, but the cross is totally different. The cross was an instrument of death. It's pretty odd when you think about it. We forget this fact because now we wear crosses as jewelry and they're a decoration. But the cross back then represented perhaps the most brutal form of execution ever. And through Christianity, the cross has been normalized. But just imagine today a little girl running around with a noose hanging around her neck or an electric chair off a necklace or a guillotine on a, on a ring. It would be bizarre, it would be strange, but that's what you're doing with the cross. This is an ancient means of execution. I mean, do you realize and do you know what crucifixion entailed? The victim would be placed on his or her back. The Romans crucified women as well. Then he'd be affixed to the cross. You could be nailed or you could be tied down. We know that Jesus was nailed because later he shows up and he has nail marks in his hands. These weren't little nails. We're talking five to seven inch railroad spikes driven through your wrists, through your feet. And the victim would be hoisted up, sending pain, shockwaves of pain throughout the whole body. And that's just the beginning. That's the easy part. Then becomes a long, slow, excruciating death. It's where we get the word excruciating from, by the way. It's from the Latin for out of the cross, excruciating. The means of death varied. It could be shock through blood loss. Most often it was a slow suffocation. With your arms outstretched, you'd struggle to breathe. You'd have to hoist yourself up a little bit with your feet to try and catch a good breath. But you're fighting constant pain and fatigue. And when you run out of energy, you you can't breathe. Eventually you you simply suffocate. But that, that could take days, which is why, as you know, the Romans would speed up the process by breaking the legs of the victims. This death was not just slow and painful, though. It was also humiliating. The Romans made this as a public spectacle. This was their terror apparatus to strike fear into the hearts of the people. They wanted crucifixions to be witnessed by as many people as possible. And to add to the shame of opposing Rome, they would almost always crucify people completely naked just to shame them. So when you study crucifixion a bit more as it existed in ancient Rome, it's not really something you joke about. It's not something you would turn into jewelry. not something you even talk about which explains a lot of what we see in the Gospels. Mark and the other Gospel writers, they tell us next to nothing about the actual crucifixion itself. And I mentioned the nails, the hoisting up, any of that stuff. Mark relates to us the crucifixion in just four words in English. Mark 15, verse 24 says, And they crucified him. That's it. That's all they say. And the other Gospels are no different. They don't tell us any more details about the crucifixion itself. Why is that? Well, partly because everyone back then knew all too well what those four words meant. In addition, as we've studied, the physical dimension of the death of Christ really is not nearly as significant as the spiritual dimension of his death. Still, though, there's something special about the cross of Christ itself. The rest of the New Testament seems to make much of the cross when you look at major passages that speak of the death of Jesus, the gospel writers, they, don't, they often don't say that he just died, but they're careful to point out he died on a cross. Sometimes all they mention is the cross. The cross itself, the means of his death, seemed to become central to his death itself. So it makes us wonder what, what's going on here. What's so special about the cross that it becomes this important? Crucifixion was the most shameful, humiliating way to die back then. So how does Paul later says he boasts in the cross of Christ? How did this terrible instrument of execution become an object of affection among Christians? Well, as we've been studying in Mark's gospel, 
the account lately of the death of Jesus, it's multi-layered. There's certainly more than meets the eye with a surface reading. Like a glacier, on the surface, it appears Mark records just a straightforward account of the execution of Jesus. But when you peer under the surface, there's a whole world of theological and spiritual significance. And we've already spent a couple weeks looking at that significance of his death on the cross. We're going to do a little bit more this morning. Specifically, I want to explore the cross itself, something we actually haven't talked about yet. The cross itself. Why the cross? It'll be more of a theological sermon. We actually won't be spending much time in Mark, but other places. But we know that God chose the cross as the means for which Jesus to die. But, but why? Could God have accomplished his purposes if Jesus was drowned? Or could Christ have made atonement if he were beheaded? Did it have to be a cross? I mean, we know prophetically the Messiah had to be crucified, but what was God trying to display through this? What, what, what's the point? There's got to be something, right? And indeed there is. This is part of God's design, and the Bible says more about the significance of the cross itself than you might realize. And so today I want to explore with you this next layer of the cross of Christ. This time the cross itself. So that you might gain a better understanding and appreciation of what Jesus was doing on that cross and what he was doing for you in his death on that cross. And notably this morning, we're going to establish this really huge connection between the cross and the curse. The cross and the curse. What curse? Well, I'm talking about the curse. The curse after the fall. That's actually where our study begins. So turn to Genesis 3. I don't know why I told you to turn to Mark 15. Because we're actually going to be elsewhere mostly this morning. We're going to go way back to the beginning, back to Genesis chapter 3. During creation, there's actually quite an emphasis on trees. God gave them every tree good for food. Garden of Eden was more like an orchard. And there are two special trees in particular, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve could eat from any of the trees except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So basically, there's a tree of life and a tree of death. One tree brought life, one tree brought death. For if they ate from that tree, God said they would die. But you know what happens next in chapter 3? It records the fall of man into sin and death. Satan shows up in the garden in the form of a serpent and talks with Eve. First, he deceives her. Or rather, tempts her to doubt God's word, rather. First, he tempts her to doubt God's word. He says, did God really say you can't eat from these trees? Then, though, he outright deceives her, saying that if she eats of the forbidden tree, she surely would not die. And together, this temptation succeeded, as you recall. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they, that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, ensnared Eve, and sin claimed its first victim. Their eyes were opened, so, wait, was, was Satan telling the truth when he tempted them? Well, yes, their eyes were open, but also in that moment, they spiritually died as a result of that sin, a fate Satan knew all too well. And as a result of this newfound sin, Adam and Eve immediately sensed their shame. Their nakedness, which before was innocent like that of a child, now came to represent their inner shame. And so they felt the need to cover their shame, and they did so with some leaves. On the heels of their shame came guilt, the knowledge that they had done wrong before God and were guilty before God. So verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. I mean, why would they ever hide from God? Only because they knew they were guilty and deserved punishment. They were afraid, like Adam says in verse 10. And when God confronts them over their disobedience, then comes denial. That's how it always works, from temptation to sin to shame to guilt to denial. That's how it always works. You remember what happened? I'll just summarize. God questioned Adam. 
Adam blames Eve. He blames his wife. She made me do it. Adam, or God then questions Eve. She blames the snake. It's all the snake's fault. And they're all guilty. None of them had any excuse. They deserved punishment and punishment they would receive. Before, God had blessed them. All they knew was God's blessing. But now he was going to curse them. And let's read this passage of the curse, Genesis 3, 14 through 19. Follow along, starting verse 14. <clears throat> the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go all the days of your life, or rather in dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. There is obviously a lot going in, going on in these verses. It's been a long time here, but we just have time to make a few notes. First note, that in relation to Adam and Eve, God basically handed down a sentence of suffering, hardship, and death. Now, because of their sin, life would begin with pain and suffering through childbirth. It would continue with pain and suffering through toilsome labor. And it would end with pain and suffering in death. So Satan was wrong. They had died spiritually, and they were going to die physically as well. And because of their spiritual death, they had to be separated from God. And so you know what happens after this. God then removes them from the Garden of Eden and force, forcefully bars them from access to the tree of life. They could no longer walk with God. They could not be with him because of their sin and guilt. However, there are subtle signs of hope that though man is now fallen, God wants to and plans to redeem fallen man. And restore him to the tree of life, whereby he might live with God forever. Verse 21 gives one such hint. Later it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Adam and Eve already had coverings at this point made of leaves. So what's God doing here? Is God merely upgrading their clothes? I don't think so. Rather, isn't this God already showing them the way back to him? Their sin and shame, which now became associated with their nakedness, needed to be covered. But their own coverings would not do. Only God could cover their sin and shame. And he was going to do so through a sacrifice. Where did the skin come from? This was the first death in creation. But God sacrificed this animal to cover their nakedness, already giving us a picture of the way back to him. And God did this for them because he cared for them. Another big hint at God's plan to redeem man despite his curse. It's found back in verse 15, which we just read. God began by cursing the serpent itself, the literal snake. But then in verse 15, his curse rises above to the, the force behind the serpent, and that is the devil. And here God foretells of human history being dominated by spiritual warfare. But there's hope, because someday the seed of the woman, a, a descendant of Eve, will come, and he will crush Satan on his head, indicating a final blow, although he himself will be struck on the heel, a non-final blow. This was surely cryptic to Adam and Eve at first, but at least they could gather one thing. God was going to provide a deliverer. There would be a seed or a descendant of the woman, Eve, who would rise up and crush the one who deceived them. And implicit in this promise is deliverance from the curse brought on by that deceiver. The seed was their only hope. For this reason, many believe 
that this verse, 315, is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. The hope of a deliverer over sin and Satan and death and the curse itself. And at the time, for Adam and Eve, that, that's their only hope. And that's the only promise they had at this point. This was their only hope for a deliverer. And I believe they were living by this hope. Look how the next, well, look how the next chapter begins. Chapter 4, verse 1. Right after this, it says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now, there's a bit of a translation issue in this verse, so I'm get a little technical with you, but just bear with me because I want to show you something. All in verse 1. Reading the NASB, what does Eve say? She says, I've gotten a child with the help of the Lord. But if you see the words, the help of, if you have the NASB, they're likely in italics. They're showing you they're actually not there in the original Hebrew. The translators added those words just to complete the, the thought. Literally, though, she'd be saying this. I have gotten a child with the Lord. Well, that, that sounds strange, though. It makes it sound like God fathered this child. We know that's not the case here. So that's why they add the words, the help of. But that's not the end of it. Do you see the word with in verse 1? I've gotten a child with the Lord. Well, that word with, it's a very interesting word in Hebrew. It has two distinct usage, usages. The word is eight. One way that word is used in Hebrew is the word with. You'd use it to, to use the preposition with. The other way that word is used sometimes is it's called a direct object marker. Now, I know this is strange because we don't have anything like this in English. But just imagine this. Take the sentence, you know, he threw the ball. A little English grammar for you. What's the direct object in that, ver- in that sentence? The ball. Now just pretend in English when you're reading that sentence that the word the ball had a little asterisk in front of it. Just showing you this is the direct object. You know, we don't have anything like that in English. But in Hebrew, that's how this word eight functions sometimes. It's, just, it's not translated. It's just telling you the next word is actually the direct object. So here's where I'm going with all this. If you take... This word eight as a direct object in chapter four, verse one. Here's my point. If you take it that way, here's what Eve could also be saying. She could be saying this. I have gotten a child, the Lord. I have gotten a child, not with the Lord, but I've gotten a child, the Lord, as a direct object. Now that also sounds strange, which is why many translators don't like that. I mean, what, Eve thinks she's giving birth to the Lord, but... I actually believe that's what she was saying. And let me tell you why. That same word eight occurs two other times in verse one, right before Cain, right before Eve. Both times everyone treats it as the direct object, not as the word with. Same thing, verse two, the word able. The word eight comes right before it, but we all take it as a direct object, not the word with. Also, this word eight is used 56 times of the Lord, Yahweh, 51 of those times, it functions as a direct object marker. So the vast majority of times this word is used with the Lord, it's telling you it's a direct object. So the point I'm making is, look, there are grammatical reasons for taking it this way. The reason people reject this is because of theological reasons. But I think theologically this fits the context best of all. Because otherwise, what is Eve really saying? I've gotten a child with the help of the Lord. Was she infertile or something already? I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense. not really telling us anything. But just think about this. Try and put yourself in the shoes of Adam and Eve. Don't you think they were having withdrawals? Don't you think they were desperate? I mean, we know of drug users who, when they come off drugs, they have this desperate longing to get back to that high place. But think about Adam and Eve. They alone actually knew what it was like to fellowship with God in the presence of God. They knew glory. They knew sinlessness. They literally walked with God in paradise. But then they lost it. They sinned. They fell. They were removed. I mean, talk about a shock to your system. We don't have that experience. We have no experiential knowledge of what it was like to be at that high place of walking with the Lord and perfection in the garden and sweet fellowship. But then they lost it all and they couldn't get it back. So think about how terrible that would be. I imagine they would have been super desperate to just try and get back to that place where they started. 
And then they have to start living life in this fallen, cursed world. And every day, they must have grown more and more desperate for redemption, for some way back to God's blessing. Well, eventually, Eve got pregnant. And she experienced firsthand part of the curse for her, a painful childbirth. I mean, she had no knowledge of pregnancy. There were no baby books, no child classes she could take. She had no knowledge if the pregnancy would take nine months or nine years. She didn't know. And she had no help for the pain. So I'm sure that every day during her painful pregnancy, the words of the curse were relived in her mind. But I also believe that Eve was clinging to the one bright spot in the midst of God's terrible yet just curse. And what was the one bright spot in the curse? It was this promise of a seed or descendant of the woman. And what would this promised seed do? Though he would somehow suffer, he would in the end crush the serpent on the head. And I bet Eve, she must have hated that serpent more than anyone. The devil, the deceiver. Because look what he, I mean, it it originally does go back to him. It's, It's his doing. They're responsible. But I'm sure she felt who would deliver her from the devil? Who would deliver her from this curse? Who would deliver her from death? And there's only one hope that God gave them at that time is just this seed, this child of her. And what do you know? She's pregnant. And so in chapter four, verse one, she's giving birth to that child, that seed. And so when Eve had her first child, I firmly believe that she thought she was giving birth to that seed right away. The deliverer was coming right then and there. And I also believe that she believed at least that this child was none other than the Lord himself. Because who else could deliver them from death? And after all, eventually that's what happened, right? The Lord did come down, born of a virgin. As a quick side note, this view, I know it's a little technical. It was taught to me by my Hebrew professor in seminary, Dr. Buznitz, who actually will be preaching at this church in three weeks. So don't miss it. And if you have problems, just ask him. Just leave it at that. Just blame it on him. Ask him. But anyway, Eve, so she has this child, and she's expecting this child to deliver her from God's curse. But you know how that story goes. Her first son, Cain, he is not the deliverer. He's not a life giver. He's the first life taker, murdering his brother Abel. And far from delivering them from the curse, Cain was cursed more. Chapter 4, verse 11, God says to Cain, you are cursed from the ground. Through Cain, God only made the curse worse. And so Eve, she basically lost two sons right off the bat. But she didn't lose her hope. Look down at chapter 4, verse 25. It says, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. You might know Hebrew names, especially in the Old Testament, they're always really significant. So why does Eve name her son Seth? Well, the name Seth, it's a word play on the word for appointed in the verse. The last time that word appointed occurred was back in chapter 3, verse 15. The promise of the seed. God promised he would appoint enmity between the serpent and the woman. This enmity would take the form of a battle between the serpent and the seed, where the seed would ultimately persevere and lift the curse. So the point is, basically, she gives birth and names him Seth because he is her new hope. Seth is her new hope. She is still holding out hope that one of her sons will be the appointed one, the deliverer. In fact, this time she uses the same word for seed of him used back in chapter 3, verse 15. So she's still holding out hope. Now we know also Seth is not the deliverer, but all this goes to show that from the beginning there's been this deep desire and longing among those who love God for deliverance from sin, from death, from the curse. And that hope was tied to God's seed, this promised seed of the woman. In fact, this hope shows up again in chapter 5 of Genesis. Chapter 5 gives the genealogy of Seth. It's not just random data. It starts with Seth, ends with Noah. Now, who is Noah? Or at least, 
who did Noah's father think he might be? Look at chapter 5, verse 29. Noah's father says, Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. Isn't that interesting? Lamech, Noah's father, he knows about creation. He knows about the curse. And he knows about God's promise to lift the curse through the seed. And for whatever reason, he is thinking or hoping that his son Noah will be the one to lift them from the curse on the ground. Now, Noah turned out to be a pretty special guy. As you get into chapter 6, you find that the whole world has been filled with unchecked depravity and violence. Verse 5 in chapter 6 says, Every intent of man's heart was only evil continually. So because of this, God was going to curse the ground again, literally, sending a flood on the earth to wipe everyone and everything out and start over. But Noah was different. Noah sought the Lord. Genesis 6, look at verse 9. It says, Noah, in the middle, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. That sounds like Adam before the fall, walking with God. In many ways, Noah was like a second Adam. God was going to destroy the world and hit the reset button and start over, And he chose Noah to be like a second Adam, a new father for humanity. Noah and his family were delivered from the curse of the flood. And the flood was a curse. It was God's, it was a next curse on the ground. After the flood, do you remember what God said? Chapter 8, verse 21. After they sacrifice to the Lord, the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. God's flood was a curse. And it was effective in removing sin from the earth. But it didn't do man any good because it provided no redemption, no salvation. God knows man's problem is deeper, cannot be cleansed with water. Rather, man's problem springs from the heart. And we'll have to be, that heart problem will have to be addressed if man is to be redeemed. God, of course, already knows this. It's what he's trying to teach us through the flood. Because after all, eight sinners got on the ark. Eight sinners got off the ark. Nothing really changed. But something special does happen in chapter 9. God does something that he hasn't done since creation. He blesses. He blesses Noah. So far, since the fall, all creation has known is the curse and God's continual curse. But for the first time since before the fall, God blesses and he blesses Noah. Noah, in walking with God, he escaped God's curse of the flood and he found a pathway back to God's blessing through walking with God by faith. Do you make that connection? All of this makes us start to wonder now, well, is Noah the seed? Maybe Noah's the guy. I mean, he's a special guy after all. Maybe he's the promised seed who's going to deliver us from the curse of the ground, the curse of death, like his father believed, right? Is Noah the one? But as you keep reading chapter 9, you quickly learn, well, nope, I guess it's not Noah. He's not the one. Because Noah, like a second Adam, he has his own fall into sin and unrighteousness. And notice the theme of nakedness is revealed. You might remember in a drunken stupor, Noah exposes himself. He uncovers his shame. And we're not going to get into it, but the whole point is he himself needs a covering for his own sin. He's not the seed. He's not the deliverer. Well, the flood has come and gone, but the curse was not lifted. There's still sin and hardship and death. You read chapters 10 and 11. Man's sin has returned, it's multiplied, it's filled the earth again. Man trying to make a name for himself. But you get to the end of chapter 11, and one name really stands out. There's a new guy, a new man of God on the scene, and his name was Abram, or later, Abraham. And here's another man of God, a man of faith. 
And here again, God does something special. God blesses him. God blesses Abraham. And those words, especially in Genesis 1 through 11, you see those words, bless and curse. Always with a special significance. God created to bless. We've fallen into his curse. But anytime you see people rise up and they're blessed by God, it's telling you something. And so let's read God's first blessing to Abraham, Genesis 12. And let's read verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12.1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Again, we see those two words. Bless and curse, bless and curse. But what stands out is that Abraham, he escaped the curse seemingly and he found God's blessing. Like Noah, he found a pathway back to God's blessing. And that path was through faith. Later in chapter 15, God continues his promise. He tells Abraham, you will have a seed yourself, a son, through whom these promises will be fulfilled. And upon hearing that promise, what did Abraham do? He believed. That's it. That's all he did. He, he just believed God. And it says that was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Abraham, he secured God's blessing simply by faith, by believing in God. This pro- promise, though, wasn't just for Abraham, but for all the nations. I mean, verse 3, it says, In him all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here is God opening up a pathway for anyone to get back to his blessing. At this point, we think, well, it wasn't Adam, it wasn't Cain, it wasn't Seth, it wasn't Noah. Is Abraham the seed now? I mean, here's another guy, new guy, very special. Is Abraham the seed? Is he the one now, the next guy, is he going to deliver us from this curse? And as you keep reading, the answer is it's still no. But through Abraham, God reveals Abraham, he's not the seed, but he is the father of the seed. The seed now will come through Abraham. Later, Genesis 22:18, God says to him, In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's that word again, seed. It's the same word used throughout. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So here, God is revealing more specifically, it's through Abraham's seed now. that The promise is passing now through him, but it's still there. The promise is still there for a seed, a descendant, a deliverer to come and to lift that curse. Now we learn he will come from Abraham. God's promise, you keep reading Genesis, you see God's promise is passed down from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, to J- from Jacob to his 12 sons, and then to all the nation of Israel, this promise is passed on. At this point, you fast forward a couple hundred years, and already part of God's promise has come true. Abraham's seed, his descendants, are as numerous as the stars in heaven. Israel has become a great nation, like God said. And God now makes open to this new nation the path to his blessing. Again, that path is simply faith. If this nation now would simply walk with God by faith and love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, they, they would be with him. They would be blessed. This is the promise God makes to the nation of Israel. He will be their God. They will be his people, restored in fellowship, if they would simply walk with him by faith. If they would just walk with God by faith, they'd be blessed. Now, when God called Israel as his special nation, he also gave them some rules, his law to live by, a way to mark them out as distinct and to live rightly before God. But this law was never meant to be confused as the pathway back to God's blessing. And the path never changed. It's always by faith. And only through the same faith of Abraham would all the nations find God's blessing, Israel included. But Israel, they missed that memo. They did not catch that. They missed the point of the law. They took God's law as their pathway into his blessing. Like if we just obey, all we got to do is obey 
and then we'll be right with God. But what's the problem with that? The problem is we, we can't obey God's law. It's impossible to perfectly obey that law. Rather, we all violate God's law just like Adam and Eve. Therefore, in the end, because of our fallen condition, all the law really brings to us is more curse, more cursing. God himself, in his law, he prescribed a greater curse on those who violate the law. So the law for Israel, it was not a source of life for them, but as they violated being fallen, it was only a source of death and more curse. That's actually one of the points of the law, though. God was trying to show them this is not the path. You, you really still need that deliverer. That's really your only hope. It's always been the only hope from the beginning. This seed, this Messiah who will come and deliver you from the curse of the law, which is the curse of death. And as they violated the law, they would have fallen under greater curse. It was supposed to make them more desperate for the seed, for the deliverer. But as you know, it didn't. They really missed it. They missed this hope. And when that deliverer finally came, they missed him too. Now we can finally fast forward to Jesus, to the time of Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene. And who is he? Well, consider Luke's gospel. How did Jesus begin his ministry? By baptism. He was baptized. The Spirit came upon him. God said, this is my beloved son. So Jesus comes and who is he? He's the son of God. And right after that, Luke and his gospel, right after the baptism, Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus. Starts from Jesus, goes through Abraham, but he goes all the way back to who? To Adam. Adam, the son of God. So who's Jesus? He's another son of God. A second Adam. And his mission is to reverse the curse. And it's no wonder what happens right after that. In Luke's gospel, which is, you know, the same timeline. Right after this, Luke chapter 4 records how Jesus encountered Satan in the wilderness and he relived the same temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. Only this time, whereas the first Adam fell, the second Adam stood. After this, what does Jesus do? Well, he works wonders, his ministry. He shows his total power over the curse. What did the curse bring on the world? Disease, sickness, famine, death. What does Jesus do? He heals the sick, cures the blind, feeds the hungry, even raises the dead. He has life in himself. He's the source of blessing. And as you reread this, isn't this what we've been studying all throughout Mark's gospel? You read this, we really get the impression, okay, it's got to be Jesus. He's got to be that seed, right? He's got to be the deliverer, the Messiah. This is him. This is the one. He's finally come to defeat sin and death and to lift the curse. Jesus himself is the way, the pathway back to God, the only hope and answer for sin and death. But something happens. That There's a curveball. For this Jesus, he's then rejected by his people. And he's condemned as a criminal and he's put to death, even death on a cross. That, that makes us pause. You know, how... Wait a second, how can that be? I thought he was the seed who's going to lift the curse and redeem us. How can he do that if he's dead? And furthermore, remember everything we learned about crucifixion? It came with shame and humiliation and reproach. In fact, the Jews especially viewed death on a cross as a sign that that person was under the curse of God. In fact, that's from their own law back in Deuteronomy 21. It says if anyone is, is, commits a crime worthy of death, the person would be killed. And then they would take the body and they would hang the body on a tree as a sign that that person was accursed by God. Deuteronomy 21. And so how much more cursed was Jesus who died on a cross? And to them, Jesus on a cross said one thing, you are cursed by God. And to them, how can that be the Messiah? He's supposed to be blessed, not cursed. But those with eyes to see have understanding here. Yes, Jesus is that chosen seed. And yes, he was cursed by God on the cross. But he was doing so to lift the curse from us. He's taking the curse 
for us. When the Jews saw Jesus on the cross, all they could see was a man cursed by God. And to believe that this could be the chosen seed, the Messiah, was just foolishness to them. Still today, 1 Corinthians 1, word of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. It's a stumbling block to them. Think the chosen one could be despised and have so much shame. But there's one big difference that they missed. Yes, on the cross, Jesus was being cursed by God. He's not just being cursed by God. He was being cursed by God for us. Two words make all the difference that they missed. Cursed by God for us. He died on that tree in our place. He bore our shame, our reproach, our sin on the cross. He took all the punishment we deserved and he paid for it. Everything Satan did to destroy creation was lifted on the cross. Yes, as we know, Satan conspired to have Jesus crucified. And so on the cross, the serpent was striking the heel of the seed. And Jesus died. He was bruised on his heel. And he died. But in that death, Jesus himself, the seed, he finally crushed the serpent on his head. And the power of Satan, which is the power of death, was finally defeated and broken. Now you might think that sounds like a wash. What good is it to kill a serpent if you die too? And the death of Jesus on the cross would be a wash if it were not for resurrection. But as Jesus rose, he proved his greater victory over sin and Satan and death itself. And every element of the curse was undone. And now you can appropriate Christ's victory to yourself by what? By faith in him. By faith in him. If now you believe that he is your seed, your Messiah, your deliverer, he can save you. Christ now is, always was, the only answer to sin and death. And you must believe in him. But it's for this reason, I don't think it's an accident or arbitrary that Jesus died the way he died. This is all part of God's plan and purpose. And many motifs of the curse show up on the cross. For example, you have the crown of thorns. Now, Scripture does not make this connection. That's true. But I don't think it's hard to see in God's providence the crown of thorns being a reflection of Jesus bearing the curse for us because thorns were part of God's curse on the world. Also, you have nakedness. I preached a whole sermon on this last year. You can find it on our website. But I, I firmly believe Jesus was crucified naked. I know this violates our sensitivities. But don't go by medieval paintings which show Jesus with a loincloth. I mean, there's no paintings from the first century. But scripture says the soldiers, they took his outer, gar outer garments and then they took his inner garments. And that's it. And we know Roman tradition, they uh, almost always crucified people entirely naked. But if that's true, we don't know for certain, but if that's true, it would only be fitting because Jesus was bearing our shame, our nakedness, which ever since Adam became the association for our shame. He was exposed before God, bearing our sin and shame that we would not have to bear it anymore. The crown of thorns, the nakedness, then you have the cross itself. What's the cross? It's just a tree that's been carved down. And in the cross of Jesus, the tree of life and the tree of death come together, don't they? Isn't the cross like a reappearing of the tree of life for us? It's like, that's our tree of life. God gave man a tree of life, but man chose the tree of death instead. But on the cross, Jesus was rectifying that. The cross became for Jesus a tree of death. But at the same time for us, it becomes our tree of life. And that's why we make crosses into necklaces. Because we get that connection, that, that difference, that his death on that cross, that's our life. That, that's our tree of life. Through him, that curse is lifted and the way to the tree of life is open once again. And through him, now we can walk with God once again. We were all barred from God, but now in the cross, we can walk with him again. 
And just in case you think I'm making all this up, this is exactly what Paul was saying in Galatians 3. You don't have to turn there, I'll read for you, but Galatians 3, Paul connected all these dots for us. He was explaining the significance of Christ's death specifically on a cross. The whole context of Galatians 3, Paul is teaching on justification or salvation by faith, not by works. He starts by teaching everything we just studied about Abraham. That the pathway to to God's blessing that Abraham found and that the nations were promised was through faith, not works. It's always been through faith and not works. It's always been the only way because the law, since we violate it, it only brings us a greater curse. So he says, Galatians 3.10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. In other words, the law of God doesn't provide a blessing for you, but a curse in the sense that if you don't perfectly obey it, you're only going to be judged harsher and greater. It's only a greater curse. Since we're fallen, we cannot perfectly obey. The only result of the law for us is a greater curse. It's not the answer. You see that? It's not the answer to the curse. More rules is not the answer. Rather, faith, trust in God himself to deliver, it's the only answer. Specifically, faith and trust in God's seed, the one he was going to give to deliver. And so Paul says in Galatians 3.13, this is the verse, the whole sermon's been leading to, Galatians 3.13, he says, But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And there he quotes that Deuteronomy 21 passage. For Gentiles living under the curse of, or living under the law of God written on their hearts, or for Jews living under the Mosaic law, the only result is the curse of death because we violate. We're fallen. But Jesus redeemed us from that curse. He bought us back from slavery to sin and to death. And the purchase price was his own blood. But he was happy to pay that price to open up a way for us to get back to God's blessing. And now those who believe in him, Jews or Gentiles, can be brought back to God. In him, in the cross, the penalty was paid, the curse lifted, and the pathway to God is open. So here is the seed dying on the tree, cursed by God for you, that you might inherit a blessing and not a curse, like Abraham. And so Paul says at the end of the chapter, Galatians 3.29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant, heirs according to the promise. And that's a promise of blessing. You know, in the first century, there was a common slander against Christians among the Jews. They would say this, Jesus is accursed. Jesus is accursed. That was the way they slandered Christ and Christians. Jesus is accursed. For them, that was the final proof Jesus was not the Messiah because he died on the cross. And if you die on the cross, that means you're under the curse of God. And so they rejected him. But it's precisely for that reason we accept him. And we boast that Jesus is accursed for us. We happily confess, we boast he was cursed for us on the cross. So can you say now that you understand a little bit better the cross of Christ this morning? But keep in mind, this is all for nothing if you don't then now internalize this and personalize this. It's not enough for you simply to know what Jesus did. You have to know and believe what he did for you. Again, those two words make all the difference. All of this only matters if in your heart you say and you believe Jesus is my Lord, my God, my seed, my deliverer. He redeemed me from the curse of the law. He's my answer to sin and death. Our world is still fallen until Christ comes back. That's true. The curse is all around us. You see it 
your sickness, your suffering, your death of a loved one. It's all around us. The world is not right. There's only one who can make things right. There's only one who can lift us from the power and penalty of the curse. Only one answer to death. And it's the seed, the promised seed from the beginning. And that's Christ Jesus who died and he was cursed by God for you. So believe in him today. Make sure you yield up your life to him today. For then and only then will you see the day when the curse is lifted from the earth itself. The day is coming when God remakes a new heavens and a new earth, free from the curse. And in that place, God will once again walk with man together, feasting on the tree of life. It will be a paradise restored, but it's only for those who right now walk by faith in the seed, in the Christ. And let me just leave you with Scripture's own preview of that time, paradise restored. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 3. Is that picture how the Bible ends? And John says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And verse 3 says, There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, that is our hope, our longing, our desire for that day when we are gone from this cursed world and with you and a new heavens and new earth made perfectly free from the power the penalty even the presence of sin and suffering and satan and death once for all lord we don't know the glory that adam and eve knew of walking with you we we are so fallen and so far removed we can't even sense that but we can sense our own sin and shame and guilt brought on by our fallenness we we fall short we are cursed We feel in our bodies the pain, the sickness, the death of our loved ones. This world is not right. And that's because of our own sin and rebellion. But you've made a plan and a promise to set things right through your seed, seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham. And he's come. And the victory has already been won. His power over sin and Satan and death itself already accomplished and proven. And in him now we can be born to new life by faith in him the pathway to your blessing it's open again it's it's always been open just by faith now the messiah has purchased that path and we're free and clear to enter back to your presence so we thank you for this we cherish these truths i pray everyone here this morning that makes it true in their own lives that they really confess christ as their seed their savior and they live accordingly following him for only those who follow him now will follow him there and then into that new life of paradise restored it's so a longing and joy. Keep us until then, Lord, in your word and your will. We thank you for these truths. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.